Well, good morning. I found a note here. Is it for me? Okay. I didn't find anything. I didn't. There's nothing there. <laughs> Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32 will be the focus of our attention this morning. Let me read the passage for us. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You know, something interesting about this verse is that on the one hand, it seems to be very self-explanatory, almost to the point that I'm tempted to say, let's just go home and meditate on it. On the other hand, this is one of those verses in which I, I wish I had 40 to 50 years of ministry experience to actually be able to understand it well. So it's one of those interesting ones. Jesus made it very clear in passages such as Matthew 15, Mark 7, that the heart of the human problem is the heart itself. No question about this. Every evil deed, every word, every evil thought you've ever had can be traced back all the way down to the very core of your being, namely the heart. Thousands of years before the Lord Jesus ever stepped foot on this earth, Solomon warned about this with the following words, Proverbs 4, 23, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. And this, my friends, is essentially what the apostle Paul is telling us in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. We must keep our hearts with all vigilance for from your hearts flow all the issues of life, or as the Lord Jesus himself told us, from the heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. So let me ask you this, in the midst of all the tensions in which we find ourselves due to a number of things like COVID-19, in case you haven't heard of it, it's a, it's a virus. COVID-19, the face mask debate, all the divisive rhetoric in the media, and all the massive social and political divisions taking place all around us, or even in your own relational struggles at home or at work, ask yourself this question, have I kept a closed watch over my own heart? Or have I been so busy looking at everyone else's faults that I have forgotten about my own? How is your heart this morning in relation to bitterness, anger, wrath? How is your mouth in relationship to clamor and slander? Listen carefully to what I'm asking you this morning. I'm not asking you if you think you are right Regarding any issue whatsoever, you may be 
That is not my question. What I'm asking you is this. Have you allowed your heart at any point to harbor bitterness, anger, or wrath? Have you allowed your words to become tools for slander? My friends, let me tell you what the real problem is when it comes to COVID-19, face mask, politics, or whatever else you can think of. All these controversial issues can and have been used very effectively by Satan to bring about a whole lot of anger, a whole lot of bitterness, a whole lot of wrath, malice, and even slander from deep within the heart, even among those who claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a shame. The truth is many professing believers were not expecting for any of this to happen. It caught them off guard and their hearts have given full bent, full vent to what was already inside. Let me tell you what I think about all the controversial issues. You know what they are? They are just like magnets because they simply attract evil affections from the heart to the surface. That's what they are. And that's what we're seeing today. And this is what Paul is warning us about in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. We as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been united with him by the Holy Spirit, have a holy duty to put all these things to death. Listen, my Christian friend, it simply does not matter what is taking place around you in the world. You have no right to harbor bitterness, anger wrath or to use your words for slander granted some offenses are real and some of them are painful but the imperative to put these evil passions away is never contingent upon the level of the offense or the level of the disappointment that you have experienced in other words, you should never feel justified to allow these evil passions to take root within your heart. You're never justified. It doesn't matter what it is. You must put them all away. So once again, this is an issue of the heart. So here is my approach for this morning. We have two verses in front of us, which means this one thing. This sermon is going to be twice as long. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm halfway kidding. <laughs> So here's, here's the approach. Okay. Uh, we'll spend half of our time on verse 31, the other half on verse 32. So let me give you just one general observation from verse 31, general observation. And here it is. And if you're following along in your notes, here's where you take notes. There is a cumulative, cumulative nature to relational sins. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander along with all malice. I'm using the word cumulative in a very intentional way. What is cumulative? Cumulative means increasing by successive addition. And that's what we see in verse 31. If you notice, there is a sense of increment in verse 31. Let's take a quick look at the words themselves. First, Bitterness. What is bitterness? Well, when I think of bitterness, I think of cereal and milk. When left soaking in milk for too long, the cereal becomes what? Soggy. It's 
my, my daughter always complains about it. She will remain nameless, though. <laughs> when cereal hits the milk, you better eat it relatively quickly. Bitterness, I think of bitterness like that. Bitterness happens when grievances are left soaking in the milk of extended thought. So the question of bitterness has much to do with our desire to quickly let go of grievances. If you don't do that, you will see the cumulative effect and the nature of relational sins for bitterness will inevitably lead to the next two words, namely wrath and anger. These two words are similar. They have certain differences. Wrath conveys more intensity than anger maybe, but they both serve the same purpose. Both have a sense of uncontrolled passions. And unlike the first mention of the word anger in verse 25, this kind of anger in verse 31 is sinful and motivated by selfish pride and desire. It is like water. You know, once you reach that boiling point, it will burn anything that touches. This is what wrath and anger do. They burn relationships, relationships. But why? Well, the answer, once again, lies in the cumulative nature of relational sins. As bitterness can lead to wrath and anger, these two will in turn express themselves how? In clamor and slander. What is, what is this? Here is where bitterness, wrath, and anger give birth to corrupting words. As I said a few weeks ago, this always happens from the inside out, never from the outside in. Our words issue forth from the heart. Clamor and slander are both references to the mouth, to the mouth. These are no longer internal passions, but the external manifestations of those passions. Clamor does not always refer to negative things. For instance, this is the same word that is used to explain the depths of Jesus's prayer to God in the book of Hebrews. For example, the word is translated as loud cries, but it does, it does have the idea of something audible, something loud, like the volume of my voice this morning, very loud. Paul uses it here in a very negative sense, more like loud complaints against others or even shouting. That's clamor. By the way, let me clarify a point here. It's important to clarify this. You can be loud in written form as well. <laughs> you can be loud on Facebook. You can be loud on email. You can be loud via text. You can be loud. Your, your words can be uh, of the clamorous nature when you are unkind to others. But of the two words used here, slander is the stronger word. What is slander? Slander is the intentional crafting of words for the purpose of injuring someone's reputation. Interestingly enough, you know, the Greek, Greek word for slander is blasphemia from which we get the word blasphemy, blasphemy. So to blaspheme the name of God is to injure the reputation of God and his holiness and his righteousness. Interestingly enough, you can do that against someone else. At bottom, slander is this, is to use your words in a way that will cause others to think less of someone else or to cast doubt regarding a person's character. 
I remember several years ago, I was pastoring a church in California and an email went out to several members of the church. I was not aware of this email. My wife will remember this story. The email was very well crafted and in fact had one single purpose, one single purpose to destroy my reputation in the eyes of the members of the church. And it was filled with lying and deceptive words, things that were blatantly false. But you need to realize this, that the person who slandered, the slanderous person is never concerned with the truth, only with causing harm. Jeremiah Burroughs, he's an English Puritan. He drew an illustration from the writings of David. And this is what he said. And I quote, this is an interesting quote from Jeremiah Burroughs. David upon sad experience, compared a wicked, reviling, slandering tongue to three fatal weapons, a razor, a sword, and an arrow. To a razor, such as one will take off every little hair. So a slandering tongue will not only take advantage of every gross sin committed by others, but also of those picadillos. In other words, slanderous people, will take whatever they can to stain someone's reputation, even small things. Secondly, slanderous words are compared to a sore that wounds. So the tongue of reproaching men cut deeply into the credits and reputations of their brethren. But a sore does mischief only near hand, not afar off. And therefore it is in the third place compared to an arrow that can hit at a distance end quote. So when you think of slander, then think of those three weapons, a razor, a sword, and an arrow. Now having addressed all these particular evil passions that we must put away, Paul now leads us to consider the ultimate issue, the ultimate issue, which is the last word in verse 31 malice, malice. What is malice? According to Thomas Watson, malice is mental murder, mental murder. In first Corinthians 14, 20, Paul uses the exact word, but in this case is translated as evil. And then in James chapter one, verse 21, the word is translated as wickedness. So we could say that malice, wickedness, and evil are essentially synonymous but this word is very, very strong. In fact, one of the definitions of malice goes like this. And I quote, malice is wickedness that is not ashamed to break laws End quote. In other words, when we take the word malice and apply it to the context of relationships, we could say that it is willingness to break God's law in order to bring injury to others. It is a very intentional form of evil. So if anger is like bowl, uh, um, boiling water, malice is like lava. It comes with a rock melting heat. It will destroy everything in its path. Malice is so intense that it conveys the idea of disregard for that which is obviously good in order to achieve that which is obviously evil. Believe me, brothers and sisters, I have seen, I have witnessed malice within the church. Malice is what 
would motivate someone to lie in order to destroy someone's reputation, even if that comes at a great cost to themselves. They are willing to go to great lengths in order to destroy. Malice would be the motivation behind those who are willing to create division for the sake of their own evil agendas. Bitterness, wrath, and anger will eventually become malice. What is the perfect example of malice? Well, the perfect example of malice in action is what we see in the trials of our Lord Jesus Christ that eventually led to his death. Do you remember those trials? Notice that in these trials, the malicious intent, the malice of the Pharisees and the Sadducees had a lot to do with words. After all, if you think about it, it was malice what motivated these religious leaders of Israel to bring false witnesses against our Lord Jesus. Their actions were a clear, they were an undeniable violation of the law of God regarding false witnessing. But in their malice, they were bent, so bent on destroying Jesus that God's law did not matter anymore. That is malice. Malice then has a blinding power over the mind. It clouds the judgments and it moves a person into irrational behavior. And Paul says, all these evil passions must be put away. Remove them from among you. They don't belong to the new creation that you are in Christ Jesus. In other words, you must live according to your new spiritual reality. You are in Christ. You are one with the Lord Jesus. Therefore, don't allow these evil affections to rule over you. Put them away. How? Well, you must allow the new life to take over. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives a good illustration at this point by speaking about tree leaves in the winter time. Here's how he said it. And I quote, the way the dead leaves of winter are removed from some trees is not that people go around plucking them off. No, it is the new life. The shoot that comes and pushes off the dead in order to make room for itself. In the same way, the Christian gets rid of all such things as bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking and all malice. The new qualities develop and the others simply have no room. They are pushed out and they are pushed off. End quote. The reason I like that illustration is because it truly conveys what is taking place within us as Christians. What is taking place within us? Well, the Holy Spirit is within us, working sanctification, making us more like Christ. It is his work. It is his blessing. And it comes from Christ Jesus himself. Well, then, what are the new leaves called? According to verse 32, and we're now moving into verse 32. The new leaves that should be growing forth are called kindness, tender heartedness, and forgiveness. Those are the new leaves that ought to characterize each and every one of our relationships. Kindness, tender heartedness, and forgiveness. Now, I want to make much of these new leaves for the remaining of our time, but especially of that last one, forgiveness, forgiveness. Now, if, if, you, if, you, if you're paying attention, verse 32, of course, is preparing the way for what? For chapter 5, verse 1, where the Bible tells us to be imitators of God as beloved children. And this is clearly seen in the words, forgiving one another. How? 
as God in Christ forgave you. And then he says, therefore be imitators of God. So this is anticipating what is coming in chapter five, verse one. But before we get into forgiveness in more detail, consider the two words that come before kindness and a tender heart. Both, both of these words are the work of God, not our natural disposition. Okay. That's the bad news. In fact, when Paul says, be kind to one another at the beginning of verse 32, that really should read more like this, become kind to one another. Why? Well, behind those words is the sad reality that sin has made us all with a propensity to be what? Unkind. Our natural inclination is to seek our own benefit. Therefore, Paul says that we need to learn to be kind. It won't come naturally. You must learn it. In other words, kindness must be an intentional practice in our lives. What is kindness? Well, the word kind at its very root has the connotation of something useful and helpful. The word tender hearted on the other hand comes from the Greek word that means healthy intestines and strong bowels, obviously. We all knew that this means that tender heartedness is essentially to be deeply compassionate toward others, gut rooted compassion, but it assumes a healthy inner being, a heart and a mind that are soaked in gospel truth. So when you take the two words together, kind and tender hearted, and you put them together, we could paraphrase it like this. You must seek to develop a deep sense of responsibility for the spiritual well-being of your neighbor. Put their interest at the forefront of your life. Seek to become useful, a useful tool that sincerely desires to see others grow in grace. And so now we come to what I would say is the very heart of these two verses, namely the issue of forgiveness, the issue of forgiveness. And I know that at this juncture, some of you will part ways with me on how uh, this time I understand the issue of forgiveness. Paul says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now I submit to you that Ephesians 4:32 is one of the most important verses in all scripture when it comes to understanding Christian forgiveness. Few other places will offer you as much clarity and detail as this one verse does. I could have dedicated a full sermon to this one verse, but I will limit myself to just two crucial aspects of biblical forgiveness that we see in this verse two aspects of biblical forgiveness. The first thing that we see about forgiveness is number one, it's motivation. It's motivation. Of course you understand that we cannot come to verse 32 without first dealing with the imperatives found in verse 31. That's an, that's a given. You must put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, 
from you. If you don't do that, verse 32 will be an impossibility. In other words, verse 31 is clearing the way for verse 32. To get to verse 32, you must go through verse 31. That's a given. But verse 32 is moving beyond verse 31. This is more than just putting away wrath and anger. Paul is advancing a stronger argument of biblical forgiveness. Verse 32 makes this clear. Very clear when Paul says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Notice with me that Paul didn't just say as God forgave you. Paul says as God in Christ forgave you. Well, here we see, first of all, the motivation when it comes to forgiveness. What does that mean? Very simple. Very simple. You were forgiven, therefore you must forgive. It would be legitimate to read verse 32 like this. Forgiving one another because God in Christ forgave you. And this is true and this is proper and this would be an appropriate way to read verse 32. However, I will argue this morning that that is not the end. That is not the end. I believe verse 32 not only provides the motivation for forgiveness, but number two, letter B, it's pattern. The pattern of forgiveness. Verse 32 reveals that Christian forgiveness is not only motivated by the gospel, but that it is also patterned after the gospel. You see, Christian forgiveness is never content simply with the attitudes of the heart, such as kindness versus bitterness or tenderheartedness versus anger and wrath. And I need to make this very, very clear. Forgiveness is more than simply putting away all these vices. Obviously, forgiveness cannot take place at all without verse 31, without putting away those vices. But forgiveness does not stop there. Christian forgiveness is so much more than this. Christian forgiveness goes beyond the attitude of the heart. Christian forgiveness is not just the attitude of your heart toward the one who offended you. Why? Because it is patterned after the gospel. And gospel patterned forgiveness possesses at least two characteristics that makes it distinct from the worldly understanding of forgiveness. What is the first characteristic? Here it is. Gospel pattern forgiveness is number one. If we're patterning it this uh, after the, the gospel gospel pattern, forgiveness is the making of a promise regarding offenses. And of course I am, I am helped here by the reformed view of um, Christian forgiveness, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Listen, if you take that little, those few words at the end of verse 32, and you just begin to work out the implications, you would never stop. It's huge. Consider the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think with me on the accomplishment of Jesus upon the cross. What did he accomplish? What happened upon the cross? Well, our sins 
were imputed to Christ as though he was the one who committed them, even though he never committed a sin. The punishment for our transgressions was given to our perfect substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why was that necessary? It was necessary because God, in his eternal love, in his eternal justice, made the following promise through the prophet Jeremiah chapter 31. What did he say? I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember what? their sins no more. My brothers and sisters, this promise God accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there any question about this? As the lamb died on the cross, God was fulfilling his promise. And now God remembers our sins no more. Does that mean that God literally forgets our sins? Of course not. It means that God does not hold our sins against us. Christ died and now there is no more condemnation for those who are in him through faith. If Christian forgiveness must follow the model of the gospel. What does that mean for our forgiveness? Well, this is how we must forgive. As Jay Adams said, forgiveness is also a promise. When you forgive somebody, you are making this promise. I will not use your sins against you. I will not use your sins as a tool for slandering you. And I will not bring them up against to put guilt on you. This is gospel patterned forgiveness. Once again, if this is not the case, then what did Paul mean at all in verse 32? I would have no idea. Consider God. God is not just willing to forgive. He forgives in full. It is like what we read in Ephesians 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church, we must love them to the fullest extent. Now, I will make reference to that verse again in just a little while. Likewise, when it comes to forgiveness, we forgive how? As God in Christ forgave us, we say, I no longer hold these sins against you. This is how God in Christ forgave us. Isn't that a reason to praise the Lord? He no longer holds any of our sins against us for condemnation. But secondly, gospel patterned forgiveness involves, involves the pursuit. Can you guess of what? Think about the gospel of reconciliation. Gospel patterned forgiveness involves the pursuit of reconciliation. If this is not the case, once again, then I don't know what Paul meant in verse 32. Where reconciliation cannot be reached due to unwillingness to either extend forgiveness or repent of the offense. In my estimation, based on verse 32, there can't be true biblical forgiveness to its fullest extent. How do I know that? 
Because whoever God forgives, God also reconciles to himself. This is a core gospel truth. Whoever God forgives, God also reconciles to himself. There is no such thing as a forgiven sinner who remains unreconciled to God. When God forgives you and I, he doesn't just say, I forgive you, period. Rather, God says, you are now my son. You are now my daughter. Come, enjoy the full benefits of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is gospel-patterned forgiveness. But I need to add two further points here. Two further points. First, Paul says, forgiving who? One another. What is the context of the forgiveness that Paul has in mind? Is it the world? No. What is the context? Is the church. The context of this type of forgiveness is the church. This, this assumes people who just like you and I are in covenant together in the body of Christ. We need to recognize that this, in this particular verse, Paul is not addressing our relationship to unbelievers, but exclusively to brothers and sisters in Christ, to people who bear the name of brother. In this sense, I would say forgiveness must involve the element of reconciliation. Why? Because if there is no reconciliation among brothers, between two brothers, two sisters, then what's, what, what is the alternative? What is the alternative? There's a lot of whispering. What is the alternative? If two brothers, two sisters are not willing to reconcile, if, if there's no reconciliation, well, Christ gave us an alternative. It's called church discipline. It's called church discipline. You see, within the church, forgiveness is a process. The final goal of which is to reconcile. A forgiveness that does not lead to reconciliation cannot be said to be a full forgiveness in a gospel sense. That is the first point I want to mention. The second point is this. The little word that Paul uses in verse 32 is very critical. Paul says, forgiving one another as God. You know, that little word in the Greek is one word is called kathos. Why do we need to make much of this word? Here's why. Gospel patterned forgiveness is not just what motivates us, motivates us to forgive. The gospel is not just the motivation to forgive. It is the pattern. It is the actual pattern. Some people want to stop at the motivation, at the heart. It's all, it's just simply a matter of the heart. In other words, for some people, forgiveness in the gospel is only the motivation, but not the pattern. I beg to differ. Consider chapter five, verse 25. I mentioned this once. I'm going to mention it again. The same word is used in verse, in chapter five, verse 25. Husbands. Love your wives. How? Kathos. Same word. As Christ loved the church. When it says, as Christ, Paul uses the same word. I submit to you that when it comes to loving our wives, Christ's love for us is not only the motivation to love them. 
but it is the actual pattern. We follow his example. We, we pattern our love for our wives in, in a way that imitates how Christ loved the church. Would anyone disagree? No. Then why don't we apply the same logic to Ephesians 4.32? The word is the same. And the issue of forgiveness, full gospel pattern forgiveness involves a promise regarding offenses and the pursuit of reconciliation because this is how God in Christ forgave us, just as God in Christ forgave us. Does that mean that if there is no reconciliation, we are free to harbor bitterness, wrath, anger, and malice? Absolutely not. God forbid. But true, full, gospel pattern forgiveness must seek for the restoration of that which was broken by the offense. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad, my Christian friend, that when God forgave you in Christ, he didn't just say, I forgive you from my heart, but that he welcomed you into the family with full benefits as a son or a daughter. Can you forgive when a person who offended you deeply does not desire your forgiveness or does not want to repent? Here's what I would say. And I say this with much humility at all times, at all times, you must have an attitude of forgiveness and by no means let your heart be overtaken by bitterness and anger. But I would say that where there is no reconciliation, I would have a hard time calling that gospel patterned forgiveness. It's like it only goes halfway. Once again, if this is not the case, I don't know what Paul had in mind in verse 32. I know you have, may have some questions. So I'm going to stop right there. Because I have questions as well. But I'm going to give you some points to ponder. Some points to ponder. The first point is this. Be aware of the evil vices still present within you. Put away, says Paul, bitterness and anger and wrath. Don't ever allow yourself to come to a place in your Christian walk where you think you are above these evil affections. You will never get there in this life. Don't let your guard down. Make sure that in your daily walk with Christ, you're always applying the cleansing balm of the gospel to your heart and your mind. You must persevere. The second, the second point to ponder is this. Grievances that call for forgiveness are expected within the church. The moment Paul says, forgive one another, what is the assumption? The assumption is that no church will ever be exempt from heartaches and from the need for us to both extend and seek forgiveness and the Final point is this failure to engage in the process of forgiveness 
is a denial of the gospel itself. So let me just try to make one final point here of application. If you have knowingly offended someone, especially within the family of God, it is your holy duty to seek their forgiveness. And if you have been offended and someone has asked you for their forgiveness over your forgiveness, it is your holy duty to extend your forgiveness for the purpose of reconciliation. Here's what I understand. I understand that at times all you can do is simply to guard your heart from bitterness, from wrath, from anger, and from slander. At times, reconciliation is not an option. But as Paul said elsewhere, namely Romans 12, 18, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for teaching us in your word the absolute need for us to put away that which is evil in us. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Father, we understand from this that this is not something that we have been able to do to its fullest extent. But we know that there is still indwelling sin. Help us to be on guard. To know, Father, that in this life we will always struggle with anger, with bitterness, with wrath, with clamor, with slander. Keep us from those things, Lord. And we also pray that you will help us to develop, to become kind and tender-hearted, to be deeply concerned for the well-being of those around us. And also, Father, give us a heart that is willing to forgive. Father, help us to be people who pursue reconciliation when relationships are broken. And help us, Lord, to be imitators of you, even in the way we seek to extend our forgiveness. And we thank you more than anything, Lord, for forgiving us in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in our place, who took upon himself the wrath that we deserved, and who died to pay the price for the wages of sin is death. And we praise you this morning, Lord, that we were not the ones who had to take that punishment upon ourselves, but that the Lord Jesus came and took it upon himself. We praise you, Lord, for the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Christ. And may he be exalted, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.